0: Thank you, worship team. Beth, I had forgotten to mention, I was hoping that you would preach this morning as well. If you could. (laughs) Okay, now we, much grace. This is a place of grace. There's a a couple that I met. We were uh, church planting in Chula Vista, Southern California. And... uh, We'll call them uh, Teresa and Desmond. And uh, they, were, they had come to the church plant. We were just this little church start, maybe uh, 30 or 40 folks at the time. And uh, he came, and we were so excited because he was a drummer, and we didn't have a drummer. So we got him right in, and he started coming. And yet Teresa, um, she would only come maybe once a month or every couple of months. And so eventually we connected with them, um, had them over for dinner and found out that it was a pretty painful story that uh, Teresa and Desmond had been through. They had one child and she was a very gifted and called individual in terms of the church. There was another church, another denomination, the pastor had kind of reached out brought her in. She was supposed to be kind of that number two person. And then, I don't know all the details, but it went south really fast. They, they moved across the country. Things didn't work out. She was let go and disillusioned in her faith, in her calling, all of these things. And it had been a number of years ago since that happened in Chula Vista, she had gotten another job. he was working as well. And there was just this sense of desolation, of sadness, of brokenness within her. And um, as she shared, you, you could feel the disalo- uh, disappointment, disappointment, the disillusionment and so forth. And yet, because it had been a couple of years, I I tried to gently press into, when's the time you, you start rebuilding, start inviting God's renewal in your life? You see, Desmond had talked to me. He said, there's been this long depression and pain. And he had communicated that there was this resistance to move forward. It had been a number of years. And so as I tried to to gently push in, there was almost no responsiveness, no desire to rebuild and renew. Unfortunately, this is not a very good story. It doesn't end well that they remained in that very, very difficult place. Desmond remained disillusioned with his marriage, with her life, and eventually he couldn't take it. He met someone else. And I joined Teresa in trying to get him to make a different decision, a godly decision. Um, She started to rebuild her life at that point. And Desmond said, it was too late. He was too devastated. I've carried that story with me for a long time and wrestled through, was there something I could have done pastorally? Was there a difference or a word or an invitation that could have made a difference that would have invited Teresa to embrace God's renewal and restoration? I don't think I have the answers to that altogether. I have a few things. And, and this morning's message relates to them, to some of the answers. I feel like the Lord uh, has, is discipling me in personally as a pastor and as a Christian. We are in our summer series, the third message, of Nehemiah, if you would turn there. We're actually right in the middle of chapter two. And where we've been a couple of uh, weeks into this, very fun looking at um, how, who Nehemiah was as not only a Christian, well, I guess uh, Old Testament, uh, Israelite, a child of God is what I should say, um, but also a leader and how God Put a prophetic vision in his heart and in his life, a- and to watch him as a leader wrestle through and pray before God and, and hear that prophetic vision and how he responds, and how we're going to see now in chapter two is really a chapter about action. Uh, We saw Nehemiah in in chapter 1, he gets the report of Jerusalem that it's still really, it's it's a city that some of the exiled Jews had returned to. They had rebuilt the temple, the center of their life and faith, but the walls were still burned, the gates were still down, they were still vulnerable. He hears a report, he's in Um, the kingdom of Persia, Susa, uh, 800 miles away, and yet it grips his heart. He prays before God, and we learned it took him four months to pray. He was praying and planning and preparing four months of waiting, and then his moment came, and he was the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. He risks his life And he asks King Artaxerxes to release him from his responsibilities so that he might travel to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And miraculously, because the hand of God was upon him, King Artaxerxes says, okay. And he releases him. He pulls a cousin Eddie on King Artaxerxes. Some of you know what I'm talking about from last week. And he prepared. He had letters. He gets timber. He gets protection. He's got this entourage. And he goes and he travels to Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story of Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. It says this. So I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding in. So if we have a map, do we have a map? Did we insert that in the last second there? Yes. So he goes from Susa. 800 miles, travels to Jerusalem, he's there, he arrives, and now he's going to start looking at, in the evening, he's going to start touring probably um, mostly around the southern part of the city of Jerusalem, and he's looking at the devastation that is there. Verse 13, By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate, And the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing officials of the city, Jewish um, officials in Jerusalem, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or the nobles, or the officials, or any others. Who would be doing the work? It already planned who would be doing the work. Verse 17 Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Chapter 1. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalot, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it. They mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? King Artaxerxes. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So I think it's fascinating to look at this story from the perspective of the first several days, how Nehemiah, this leader, he's anointed by God, he feels God's call, he's given this prophetic vision for God's kingdom and specifically for Jerusalem, how he responds and what he does and the decisions he makes in the first several days. Um, days that he arrives in Jerusalem. Did you notice that Nehemiah, even though he apparently is this man of action, he's taken the bull by the horn. And so he takes the risk. He goes before the king. He gets all of the material. He's got the letters. He's got the timber. He's got protection. He's got all of this. He's a rise to Jerusalem. And do you notice what he does right when he gets to Jerusalem? He did something for three days. It wasn't work. He didn't get right to it. He didn't arrive and go, hey, here I am. Let's rock and roll. Did you notice that in the very verse? Verse, verse 11 just says this. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days. Again, I like to ask questions of the text. What did he do for Three days did he sleep probably some of that maybe you know like our mission trip folks mosquito bites and all of that he had uh, from his travels there do you think he could have been doing anything else the the text really doesn't tell us why 3 days and i thought about jesus and in the in the tomb and is there some significance to that and and i this is my best bet This is the the thing that I I think, because it's a principle that's often overlooked, especially in terms of leadership, that really struck me as I was asking that question and praying, I think that godly leaders know that at key moments in life were to wait on the Lord. That there is a, a timing piece, that we, especially within God's kingdom, there's always the danger that we're moving too far ahead of God or we're lagging behind, right? And Nehemiah, he gets there with all his entourage and he waits. He waits. You see, I think the the principle what drew me is that this is a principle, we see this throughout Scripture is the timing and the waiting. The Psalms in particular have this beautiful principle like Psalm 5.3. It says, in the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. When was the last time that you shared your request before the Lord and then you waited? You waited on him. How about Psalm 27:14? In fact, where Command and wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is not a picture of waiting. Is not in hesitancy, in weakness, in lack of faith. No. This is an aspect of allowing our faith to grow, allowing to see and ask God, is this right? What are you doing? How am I to cry We've come this far, God. I don't want to make assumptions. A number of times, I would say in my leadership, I feel like the the Lord is telling me what to do, and so I keep marching, 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 and I'm missing the timing, and sometimes I get ahead, and it wasn't the right time in the Lord. Waiting is a place of growing in faith. Waiting is a place not of weakness, but in trust of the Lord. Waiting is a sense of wanting our timing to be in sync our rhythm to be in sync with God's Psalm 135 and 6 I wait for the Lord my whole being waits and his word I put in his word I put my hope I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits For the morning, more than a watchman wait for the morning, a a, a picture of a watchman sitting on a wall of a city and watching and making sure, being careful about enemies, waiting for the sun, for the darkness to pass. So that's a picture, an analogy of us in prayer, of us in life, that there's times that we're called to wait and watch like watchmen on the wall. Say, Lord, what are you doing? Where's your timing? How are you working and allowing him to disciple us in that moment? But a young adult, he's, uh, he lives in a different state. I'm, I'm somewhat of a, a spiritual mentor toward him. I, I love him. He has a great heart for Jesus. Um, and uh, he was working a job. And he heard a pastor, and I, it was a good message. The, the past, pastor was sharing about um, redeeming work and stepping into your destiny. And if you're working a job that is unfulfilling, if you're working a job that you don't feel is from the Lord, if you're working a job that is not building his kingdom, enabling you to build uh, his kingdom, then you should find that new job that is God-inspired, that is called, and step into that. He created us to work. He wants to redeem our work. He wants us to, to work for his kingdom in whatever job we have, but how has he, he knit you together? And this young adult was like, yes! And see, so you know what he did? He quit his job. And lo and behold, he could not find another one for a super long time. And as we process this together, I said, you know, give me a name. Sorry, I don't want to share his name. James. I said, James. I said, listen, if you would have processed with me just a little bit, can we talk about a principle of waiting? It's good what this pastor was sharing. But sometimes you say, God, I believe this is from you. This is a stirring. You're directing. You're guiding. And so you wait in prayer. By the way, there's another principle. It's much easy, easier to get a job when you got a job. We would have talked about that principle too, right? Right? And you pray about opportunity and, and all those things. So he finally did get a job and it was a good job, one that he really feels like he's making a difference in the secular realm that's good, but it took about eight months to get that job, and there were some other, um, other things that were happening. I was listening to a pastor share, and he was wrestling through, the, there's some in more charismatic circles that have talked about why it feels that the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is really active in other places of the world, that in other places of the world, the church is thriving. And why isn't he thriving in the United States? And this pastor said, Well, I, I'm sure there's a number of reasons for this, but one, he said, one reason might be that we've lost a practice to tarry in the Lord. And my first thought was, who's Terry and what does he have to do with this? And then I realized he was using an old word from the King James translation that before Pentecost, what did Jesus say to do? Don't jump into the ministry. Don't, don't go after it. What, what were they supposed to do? Wait with Terry, right? Right? He was the 13th apostle. No, no, no. They were, they were to tarry. They were to wait. They were to pray for God's resources and renewal. Private, apply that personally. Is, is there a thing that, that God is calling you to action? Is there a stirring that he's God? And, and maybe you've known that, but, but you've not waited in the Lord. You've not said, God, I, I, that is too big for me. I can't do it on my own strength, my own resources, who I am. I need you. And God, that doesn't matter. Help me, Lord. Help me to see. Lord, build my faith. Help me to trust you in that. Friends, I, I think sometimes we're not living the life that God has called us to live because our our vision for our lives and how he wants to use us is far too small. Or or that we've never heard the sense of destiny. We've never understood that God is not a God about depression and pain and sorrow. He's not saying, I want you to wallow for a really long time in that devastation. No, there's a process, there's a time of waiting, but also there's a time you saying, you know, I'm at work, I'm restoring every life in this world, I'm restoring my church, I'm restoring every nation, and I'm inviting you to be a part of this great restoration project, whether it's Thousands of years ago, with Nehemiah and restoring Jerusalem at that time, whether it's your marriage or or whether it's relationships, whether it's your career and your call, whatever that is, God's will and plan is about restoration and renewal. And yet, I, I think there's a there's a spiritual blindness at times, or a spiritual lethargy that that's that's just not vibrant in our lives, in every aspect, relationship, career. One of the the best things we can do is receive God's prophetic vision as Nehemiah did for our life in whatever aspect and then wait and pray and process this with the Lord. Now, Nehemiah waits for three days, but then you notice he jumps into action. And most of this... Most of this chapter is about him uh, on a mount for a while and then walking in the night. He's uh, maybe creating intrigue of the, the leaders, but he's looking at the devastation. He's looking at the job to be done. He is seeing exactly what is gonna need to take place for them to build Uh, Jerusalem back and bring safety to this. Look at verse 17. So he travels, and then he says, he gathers the people, assumingly, and, and the priests and the nobles and the leaders, the political leaders, and he says this in verse 17. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Again, I believe Nehemiah is uh, modeling another principle of godly leadership, and this is godly leaders do, do their research, but especially, go to the next slide, um, clearly state reality clearly state. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't pull any punches. He looks at the devastation. He doesn't say, you know, it's going to be okay. I I think we're all right. God's got us. We're good. No, he calls the people together and say, this is bad. We are vulnerable. The walls, the gates, we're down. I was at a, a leadership conference course, with a resistant heart. I've confessed that and coming over that. But I was at this leadership conference, and there's this leader that made a point that has stuck with me. Um, uh, The the leader is retired under some questionable circumstances, so I'm very disappointed um, about that. But he still has uh, some of the principles that he has shared, Bill Hybels, have been very significant for me. This is one of them. He talked about the principle of godly leaders having a holy discontent. A holy discontent. He called it the Popeye moment. Using Popeye's language, that's all I can stands, I can't stands no more. That God works in the midst of a holy discontent, that sometimes God wants to call us to action, not to sweep things under the rug, but he's saying, yes, this is bad. Yes, this is broken. Yes, this aspect of your life lives in ruins. Would you allow me to stir up that holy discontent? I'll tell you what you need to do. I'll give you the resources to restore. But you have to
1: feel it.
0: Nehemiah felt it. He felt the disgrace. He felt the devastation. Deep in his bones, it was that holy discontent that he spent four months before God saying, God, What's going on with your nation? And he confessed sin. It wasn't wasn't a pride. It didn't lack humility. He was confessing too. I realize this, that part of my my father and I'm part of the people, we've done this, and yet he had this. This is not okay. What are you going to do about Jerusalem, God? And I imagine the father said, I've been waiting for you to ask that. When was the last time that you experienced this holy discontent in some aspect of your life and allowed the Spirit of God to stir you into action? You know, if you look at some of the the godly leaders, Old and New Testament, you see this principle of holy discontent. Think of Moses. Moses. His Popeye moment, if you will, was the enslavement of God's people. God had to convince him that he was the man to do something about it. But it was this holy discontent with the slavery, how the Egyptians were treating the Jews. Think of King David. Well, before he was king, shepherd David. And he saw who? Goliath on the field and he was raging against God and God's people, what was David's holy discontent? This is not right. He is dishonoring the one true living God and his people. I don't care I'm a, I'm a little boy. God's going to show up and do something, right? It was a holy discontent. Think about the prophets, especially like Isaiah and Jeremiah, the lack of holiness and righteousness and reverence of God's people that drove their ministry, that drove their words. They were saying, This is not right, people. I was thinking of the story of, of Mother Teresa, did you all know that she wasn't born a saint? <laughs> You're you know what she did before she became Mother Teresa, essentially? She was a geography teacher, a Catholic high school in Calcutta. You know that? And she would walk to class every day, and and she would see the the devastation of the people on the streets, the, the deplorable conditions, and it wounded her heart. That was her holy discontent moment. She eventually would connect with former students and say, this is not okay. You'd see the hospitals rejecting those who were dying, and they were literally dying on the street. She was saying, this is not okay. She prayed, God, what are you going to do about this? And I imagine he said, I've been waiting for you to ask. this holy discontent think of jesus do you think holy discontent was a part of his ministry at all i'm guessing a yes yeah, mostly. You know, it's fascinating hundreds of years after nehemiah nehemiah we we read he's he's touring the city he's looking at the walls and they were devastated and we're going to see how they begin to rebuild and then over the several hundred years between Nehemiah and Jesus, they were going to build the temple and, and, and the walls and the city of Jerusalem and especially the temple was going to be built up gloriously. And the, and the temple in Jesus' day was incredible, the amazing. It was a wonder. And yet Jesus in somewhat of a tour of Jerusalem, said this, "'Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets "'and stone those sent to you, "'how often I have longed to gather your children together "'as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, "'and you were not willing.'" Just like Nehemiah, Jesus would lament Jerusalem, but not because of the, the bricks and the mortar. Why? The lack of spiritual vibrancy, the, the, the emptiness of God's true presence, the legalism, all of that, the, the spiritual emptiness that was there. Jesus was lamenting in that. When's the last time You've allowed a holy discontent for your life, for this church, for the church of Jesus Christ, for this nation. Seven year vision, you guys hear me talk a lot about that. Do you know that there is a holy discontent at the heart? of the seven-year vision. Do you know that? I can't let go of it. Maybe God's allowed this for a super long time. But, but there's a holy discontent in the lack of life transformation daily in this church and the church of the United States. The, the lack of true spiritual formation that's taking place. There's another holy discontent. I would just call it sacred friendships. That I believe our friendships and our connections with one another in community should look like, be unlike any other friendships and relationships on the face of the earth, including our biological family. That the unity, the love, the sacrifice, the prayer, the care for one another, there should be this sacred element to it. That that should be the heart of our testimony and evangelism. I have a holy discontent for this church and the church in the United States. One other holy discontent is a a thoughtful and spirit-empowered witness and testimony to this broken world. It's about the kingdom of God and about restoration. That's not about judgment and condemnation as so often the church is about but is about healing and restoration and renewal. Am I giving it to you too straight? No. Am I stirring some holy discontent in you? Yeah. I really want to. You know, I, I felt the Lord was, was directing, thought I, I'd be a, a little bit, talk about our nation a little bit. <laughs> but I felt like I'm supposed to talk about the state of the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States. And, and this is part of what's stirring in me. Some of you know that we're part of a denomination, the RCA, and we have a sister denomination, the CRC. Do you know that our denomination has been in decline? my entire lifetime. I'm not yet 50. For 50 years, almost every mainline denomination in the United States has been in decline. I don't think that's okay. Did you know um, Every year, approximately, in our denomination, CRC, both about a thousand churches, we close approximately 15 and a half churches every year. And we start about three. I'm no mathematician, but that doesn't bode well, does it? And it's not just the mainline denominations. Do you know that As a whole, all the Protestant churches, we're closing more than 4,000 churches every year across the nation. Some estimate more like 7,000. It's somewhere in that range. And we're only starting around 1,000 churches a year. Every year it is estimated that 2.7 million church members turn away from the church and fall into inactivity. Some could argue that's different in Colorado Springs. I, I think we're a little bit different in Colorado Springs. But I'm going to just share a little bit of holy discontent. That when I see a lot of church growth, it's a swapping of the sheep. It's people moving from one church to another church to another church. And we're claiming growth. I don't think that's okay. I want you to hear my holy discontent. I include our church in this. I have a lot of holy discontent for our church right, that's stirring in me, that's wrestling in me. I think the Lord says it is not okay that the kingdom of God is thriving in parts of the world. Hallelujah that he's doing that. Hallelujah that we get to pray and see. And yet there is this lack of spiritual discontent For his church in the United States, we would much more prefer to criticize the nation rather than the church. I don't think that's the Spirit of God. I do think the Spirit of God is filled with holy discontent. Okay, final principle uh, of leadership. Look at verse 18 with me again. Uh, actually, look at the second part of verse 17. He talked about Jerusalem. He laid it on the line. He gave it to them straight. And then he says this, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. He, Nehemiah, at the key time, he waited. He wanted to be in the timing of the Lord. He looked at the devastation. He was real. And then he stands before the people, and he says, Come. Come. Let's do this together. Let's trust God. And then he goes into a little bit of a testimony of God, how God's hand was with him before the king and getting all the supplies here that he's there. And he says, come, would you join me in serving God's kingdom in this way? I know this is a shock to most of you that I thought of a video clip but it's only 45 seconds, so we'll do it real quick, right? It's a recent movie on a, a very old events. It was uh, Winston Churchill in the darkest hour, and Nazi uh, Hitler uh, was moving across, and, and the Western Europe was falling, and you sat, had some people advocating peace, 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 And Winston Churchill was, in some ways, a lone voice, saying, no, this is not okay." So he stood before the House of Commons, which is going to give a part of this speech.
1: We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing with confidence and growing strength in the air. Yeah. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. Yeah. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight. In the fields, and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! Ha! <laughs>
0: But he was facing evil. He was facing darkness, and he says, get out of this lethargy. Get out of this immobilization. We need to act. In fact, Dunkirk, he would call, some of you saw that movie, uh, a miracle of God. They, they found a way. The victory was theirs. I was reminded of Joshua, when he was saying to them, they were just about to take the nation, uh, uh, the, the promised land, which included Jerusalem. And Joshua said to the Israelites, he said this, how long will you wait? I like that he used wait because there is a time of waiting and there's a time of not waiting any longer. And going after it, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you? I think I could say, how long will you wait to embrace the life that Jesus Christ has for you? How long will you wait to embrace the best aspect of kingdom life, which is intimacy and walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we get to walk with God personally, one-on-one? Are you kidding me? How long will you wait to step into that? How long will you wait to press into sacred friendships with one another? How long will you stand back? How long will you wait, inspired by God, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, and our families? This best message, this restoring message in all the world, God is inviting us to share. And I think he's saying to this church and the church in the United States, how long Will you wait to step into this beautiful life? I-, I wish I was a more mature and spirit-filled pastor with Teresa and Desmond. I wish I, I could have given a little bit stronger of a challenge. To Teresa, Teresa, how long will you wait? Do, do you see your, your husband is, is struggling and unsatisfied? Do, do you see this is affecting your personal life, your physical health? When's the time? It, it's been a number of years. How do you press into renewal and rebuilding and restoring your marriage because you know that's God's will. That's what God is doing. That's God's desire for you. Friends, what aspect of your life is he saying? Maybe you've become far too comfortable. Maybe you've allowed fear to suppress what you know God is saying to you. Maybe you've remained at that job that is not life-fulfilling, that isn't part of God's kingdom work, and yet you've allowed fear to stifle. Maybe you have justified a sin in your life that's compromising your life and you've not waited on the Lord and said, Lord, help me to break this. Let's pray. Father, we... We want to be a people who embraces the abundant life you've promised us, the full life that you've promised us. We want to be a people that, that, that steps into your kingdom in the here and now, that's not just waiting for your kingdom. Someday we'll get to be with you, but today we want to be with you now. Lord, help us. If there is a complacency, a, 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 a spiritual complacency that's taken a hold in our lives, we repent this morning. Lord, as we come and prepare for the table, Lord, if there is an unrighteous attitude, Maybe it's judgmentalism towards this this nation or to other people. If there's any unrighteous attitude that has, has gripped us and is dominating our lives, Lord, we ask for forgiveness. Lord, there's some of us that have been gripped with disappointment and bitterness, and we're still angry at you, and it's been years... And rather than seek you for healing and restoration, we've simply wallowed in that unhealthiness. Holy Spirit, would you uproot from our hearts and our souls and our minds all that is not of you, all that is distracting, Oh Lord remove that by the power of your Spirit and Lord would you fill those places with your goodness and your grace your faith your hope your trust we wait on you Lord that work I'd like to invite the elders forward how uh, we few of you that are new to the congregation we have a station for each section of chairs and at the appropriate time can leave to your right, come and take the elements but hold on to them and return to your chair to your left and we like to take all the elements together we'll do that it was the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed that he took the bread after he blessed it gave thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you realize that's at the heart of the sacrifice of Christ? He was broken so that we might be made whole. He was broken so that we might rebuild faith and life that we might be restored. That's how the kingdom of God works. In the same way after Dinner. he took the cup and he blessed it and he said, this is a new day, a new covenant which is in my blood. In essence, he was saying, I'm offering you a new life. No longer isolation. No more separation from your God no more enslavement to sin, no longer purposeless and chaotic living. He was saying, I give you a new covenant, a new relationship with God, and a new life in Christ Jesus. Now, now. Friends, all is ready. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have committed your life to him, then would you come
2: Question 2.
0: Can we please stand together? This incredible dynamic of the kingdom of God. It's through his brokenness, it's through the shedding of his blood that we are made whole, that we are made full In Jesus Christ, take, eat, and drink.